Welcome to this message from the teaching ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Orlando, Florida, under the leadership of Senior Pastor Mike Osborne. Great. We're starting today a new series of um, studies in what you just heard, the Ten Commandments. Uh, we're going to be taking our time as we look one by one, one week after another, at each of the Ten Commandments. So go ahead and open your Bibles, if you have one, to Exodus chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible, we've got plenty of them here. In fact, if you don't own a Bible, stop by the welcome desk and we'll give you one. But if you uh, look at the little church Bible under chairs... Uh, It's going to be found on page 73. So we're going to look today at Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 21. And today's message is going to be kind of an introduction to the entire series. And beginning next week, we'll take one commandment at a time and march all the way through until the first, roughly, I think, the first Sunday of November, looking at the law of God and seeing how it relates to us and how it points us to Jesus Christ. So listen carefully as I read God's word. Exodus 20, beginning at verse 1. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I... The Lord your God am a jealous God, punishing the children of the, for the sin of the fathers to the third or fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien that is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. We're going to stop right there and I'll read verses 18 through 21 later on. But let's look to the Lord together in prayer. Father, thank you for your law. Thank you for this portion of your word. And we pray today, Lord, that as we bow at your feet, that you will be our teacher, that you'll use this portion of your word to direct us, not only in how to live, but in what to believe and how to seek after Jesus Christ and your glory. And we pray this in his name. Amen. How do you react to the Ten Commandments? Um, There are lots of different responses that people today make to what we've just read. You've heard it in video. You've read it now on the page of Scripture. How do you react? 
Um, I would say that if you talk to the normal, typical, average man or woman on the street, he or she would definitely give a tip of the hat to the Ten Commandments. I mean, who wouldn't, right? I mean, who would not recognize that the Ten Commandments are a great ideal to shoot for? Many people would say, well, yes, of course, I love the Ten Commandments. Uh, it's doubtful that they would be able to say the Ten Commandments. A study has found that more people know the ingredients of a Big Mac hamburger than know the Ten Commandments. The Gallup survey that was done shows that about 15% of our country can recite the Ten Commandments. But nevertheless, they do recognize its validity, its goodness. It's, uh, to many people, kind of like the golden rule. Maybe it's like that Morgan and Morgan billboard that you might have seen says, love God, love people. You know, who couldn't disagree with those kinds of ideals? But truth be told, most Americans live as though the Ten Commandments are practically irrelevant to everyday life. We, you know, we live in a morally relativistic culture, right? In which decisions are made not based on what is moral and right, but more often than not on what is normal and acceptable. Standards are always changing. What is PG-13 today might have been R last year. What's okay for me is not okay for you. Um, What is oppressive or offensive to one culture might have been very popular in another. So any attempt to say this is right and that is wrong for all people at all times is met with a cry of protest from a lot of people who would say that we're being narrow-minded and unloving. You have people today who despise the Ten Commandments as well. People who find them offensive, who who believe that they are the symptom of an oppressive religious system that has no place in public discourse. The late atheist Christopher Hitchens said about the first three commandments... They are no more than a long, rasping throat clearing by an, un, by an admittedly touchy dictator. A lot of people today also within our conservative camp, for example, have made the Ten Commandments a political football that is tossed back and forth as discussion and controversy goes on about whether the Ten Commandments ought to be displayed on government property. And so we miss the message of the Ten Commandments to the church with all of the political stuff that comes along with it. Unfortunately, there are people who, even perhaps among us, with more pharisaic tendencies, who use the Ten Commandments like a hammer to condemn and to judge people who we think don't live up to them. And then there's the view of some who are known as dispensationalists who say that the Ten Commandments were meant only for Israel in the Old Testament period. They're not binding on us Christians today, they would say. The Mosaic law has been superseded by Christ. Maybe it's been a useful moral uh, guideline for our behavior, but it's not a permanent moral code for us who follow Jesus Christ. But that's not so. That's inaccurate. The ceremonial laws, yes. The civil laws that applied back in the day of the nation of Israel, yes, they've been abrogated by Jesus. But the moral law is a continuing, perpetual rule for, be- for believers. The moral law is what we call summary, summary form, the Ten Commandments. Look at this uh, statement from Jesus. He said back in uh, Matthew chapter 5, Don't think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So according to Jesus there, you see that the law is still in effect. And we're going to be looking this next 10 or so weeks at exactly what that means. How is it in effect? What does that mean for Christians today? How does New Testament light throw more uh, more wisdom upon the Old Testament that we have here? But it's still in effect today as the roadmap for Christian behavior. So all of these and other responses might be listed. How do you respond when you look at the Ten Commandments? Let me show you how the Israelites responded when they heard them for the first time in the book of Exodus. Look with me now at verses 18 through 21. Keep your Bible open right there. Verse 18 of Exodus 20. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen. But don't have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. That was the reaction of the Israelites when they heard the word of God from Mount Sinai in Exodus 20. So what I want to do this morning is as we introduce the Ten Commandments, I I was hit by verse 20. I wanted to use verse 20 as a way to get us oriented to how we as Christians ought to approach the Decalogue. It's just another word for the Ten Commandments. Look at verse 20 again. It's up here on the screen. It says in that verse that Moses said to the people, do not fear. In some translations it says do not be afraid, but it's literally do not fear. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Now I'm I'm saying that that's a paradox. That's a paradox because Moses says two things using the same word. First, he says, do not fear. And then he says, fear. How do we put those two ideas together? Do not be afraid. Do not fear. But yes, fear. Both times, it's the exact same Hebrew word. Maybe it would help us if it were two different words, but it's not. It's the Hebrew word yirah. Do not fear. Fear. That word means to be afraid of something or someone, to be in awe or to dread something or someone. So is Moses confused? Is he trying to confuse us? On the one hand, Moses is saying that in a very real sense, you should be afraid of God. That there is a kind of fear you should have. And then on the other hand, he is saying that in a very real sense, you don't have to be and you should not be afraid of God. There is a kind of fear you shouldn't have if you're a follower of Jesus. How do you put those ideas together? How can God be both scary and inviting at one and the same time? If you can get that, you will get the gospel. This is extremely important stuff as we look together at that question. So what I want to do is show you two things from this introduction part of uh, Exodus 20. 
The first thing is this, that the Ten Commandments reveal the character of a holy God who expects and deserves to be obeyed. Say that again. The Ten Commandments reveal the holy character of God who expects and deserves to be obeyed. This is where the fear part comes in. Look back at chapter 19 of Exodus with me. If we had time, I'd read more of chapter 19, but let me just tell you what's going on. In Exodus 19, the people of God arrive at Mount Sinai. Now, you probably know some of the story. If you've seen The Prince of Egypt, if you've seen the old movie with Charlton Heston, you, you've read the Bible story, you know that uh, 90 days before they arrived at Mount Sinai, the people of Israel had been slaves in Egypt. In fact, the people of Israel had been slaves in Egypt for over 400 years. They had been making bricks without straw. They'd been enslaved. They'd been, miser- they'd been in misery. And uh, what God did is he came to their rescue. You know what happened was the Passover and all of that, the Exodus. They came out of Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. God gave them manna from heaven. He gave them water out of a rock and so on and so forth. And they arrive at chapter 19 at the foot of Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, God says to Moses in verse 10, get the people ready. Get all of the people ready because I'm going to come and descend on Mount Sinai and speak to you. Consecrate the people. Get them ready. Get them prepared to meet with me and listen to my words. On the third day, verse 16, there was thunder and the people saw lightning. There was this loud trumpet blast out of heaven. The whole mountain started to shake says in verse 18 that the people started to tremble because of this earthquake. And down there at the end of chapter 19, God warns Moses a second time, tell the people, don't let them come close to me. Don't let them get too close. Don't let them touch the mountain or else I will break out against them and they will die. That's all found out in there in chapter 19. And then we get to chapter 20, verse 1. Look at that verse. It says, and God spoke all these words, I am the Lord, your God. Notice that word Lord. It's in all capital letters. And the reason it's in all caps, as many of you know, is that that's a clue that the translators are telling us that's a special name of God. It's the Hebrew name Yahweh. The name that was so sacred to the Jews that they wouldn't even pronounce it. The name Yahweh, what does it mean? It means pure being. It means I am who I am. I will be who I will be. It is that covenant name of God that communicates the fact that He is sovereign. He is self-sufficient. It communicates His eternity. It communicates His infinity, His authority, His sovereignty, His supremacy. I mean, all of those ideas are wrapped up in that amazing name, Yahweh. And God says to Moses, through Moses to the people, I am Yahweh, your God. And it says in verse 1 that he, God, Yahweh, spoke to his people. Do you get the import of that? Do you get the fact that this Yahweh, infinite, eternal self-sufficient, needing and nothing, holy, high and lifted up and exalted God actually spoke to his people. That's what the Decalogue is. It is God's message to us. It's a message from heaven to us. 
You know, it's not just that a bunch of Jews got together one day and said, you know, we want to become a nation. So we need to get organized. We need some policies. Uh, what do you think? You know, what do you think? Let's band together and brainstorm. What should we put together? Do we want 15 rules, 20 rules? How about 10 rules? What do you think? No, it was not that. It was a message direct out of heaven to us. These are God's words, God's stipulations, God's requirements. We obey them because God said so. Parents, you know what I'm talking about. How many times have you had to say to your kids, because I, what, said so. You're walking through Target with your little boy. And he sees that Star Wars Legos kit sitting over there. Mom, can I get that Star Wars kit? I don't have that one yet. Well, how much does it cost? Uh, $40, $25. No. Why not? Because I said so. Or it's 1030 at night. Dad, you're sitting in there watching TV and your daughter, teenage daughter comes in and She says, hey, dad, can I go over to my friend's house? What are you going to do? I don't know. Just hang out. Well, who's going to be there? I don't know. People. Well, how are you going to get there? Well, I was hoping you could take me, but if you can't, there's this boy who can come pick me up. (laughs) Well, what's his name? Well, he's somebody you don't know. No. No, sorry. Why not? Because I said so. See, we do that all the time. I'm sorry, kids. It's just what you're going to do when you get to be a parent too. (laughs) You're going to be in that same situation. But that's what God is saying in the Ten Commandments. Because I said so. I'm Yahweh. I am the Lord The sovereign creator of the ends of the earth. The one who made you and gives you life. The one to whom you owe every breath you take. Every beat of your heart comes from me. I said so. As you've probably heard, many people have said, these are not the ten suggestions. (laughs) They're the ten commandments. Your attitude toward the commandments says a lot about your attitude toward the commander. He is a holy God. He made us. He provides for us. He is our king. And he has every right to expect immediate, total, unquestioning, and constant obedience. He is God. Now, I know nothing could be more unpopular a concept of God than that. Ever since Adam fell in the Garden of Eden, human beings have had this tremendous need and desire to create God in our image, to make and fashion a God who won't threaten our independence, you know, a God who makes minimal requests of us, a God who answers our prayers and a God who tells us how good we are and pretty much leaves us alone to do our own thing and go where we want to go. That's the kind of God that human beings, me, you, all of us by nature, want and desire with all of our being. But Exodus 20 won't let us do that. 
Here is a God who speaks and who says, this you will do and this you will not do. And when there is violation of my design for you, there will be consequences. The Decalogue is a summary of the will of God for his creatures. They are an expression of his authority over us. Every one of you, because of this, should know the Ten Commandments. Every one of you should have them memorized. We should, as a church, UPC, we should all be able to recite all ten, just like that. We should be teaching them to our children. Just like those kids, I don't know who they are, I just found that on YouTube. But those kids had been well taught, right? Let's all have kids like that, that can say the Ten Commandments. That's not unimportant. Why? Well, one reason is, is that our mission is to make disciples of all nations. And you know, that verse from 2819 of Matthew that we have as our mission statement is really just shorthand. The rest of that passage says that we're to be baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and what? Teaching them to obey everything I, Jesus, have commanded you. What has he commanded us? Well, part of what he's commanded us is the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. You should be thinking about the Ten Commandments during during the daytime. At the end of the day or during the day, you should sometimes walk through the Decalogue in your mind and ask yourself questions like, what commandment have I broken this day? What gods did I worship today besides the one true and living God? What idol did I worship today? What was my attitude toward money today? Did I waste my Sunday? How did I treat the name of God lightly today? To whom did I have murderous thoughts this afternoon? Who did I want to throw under the bus today? Who did I want to ignore? Over whom did I want to exert my will instead of submitting to his or to her will? How did I shade the truth today? What did I take from someone that didn't belong to me? What possession, what person did I covet today? Now that's painful, isn't it? And I'm just telling you right now, it's going to be a painful journey the next 10 weeks as we look at each one of these commands and see what they really mean for us and how, how they, they probe the heart to find the things that we do and don't do that we hardly even think about. That's what we're going to be doing the next 10 weeks. Why should we do that? Why do an inventory like I'm talking about? It's because Yahweh is the Lord, our God. He's the master of the game and has the prerogative to set the rules. He is the suzerain, our conquering king, and we're his subjects. Think of the Ten Commandments sort of like a covenant document. Because that's really what it is. The Mosaic covenant was summarized here in Exodus 20. What's a covenant? Uh, A covenant is a binding agreement between a sovereign and his subjects. And it's been sealed with bloody promises. A covenant says, this is who I am. This is who you are. This is what I promise to do for you. And this is what I expect of you as well. The ten words 
Another way to look at the Ten Commandments. Reveal the character of our holy God. So what? Fear him. Yes. Fear him. Because the fear of God, as it says in verse 20 of our text, will be with you to keep you from sinning. I say again, Moses tells us, the Bible tells us, that there is a fear of God that you should and must have. But the Ten Commandments not only reveal the holy character of God, they also reveal the gracious heart of God that has provided satisfaction for our disobedience. Say that again. The Ten Commandments reveal the gracious heart of God that has provided satisfaction for our disobedience. Moses in verse 20 again, that paradoxical statement says, do not fear. We sang that song earlier today. I am the Lord your God. Do not fear. That's what Moses says. Do not be afraid. And we want to say to Moses, come on, Moses, which is it? I mean, you've got to be kidding. How can I not be afraid when lightning is striking all around me, when thunder is booming in my ears, when I hear this loud trumpet blast, the mountain itself is shaking, and this law tells me what I do, must and must not do? How can you say that I don't have to be afraid? Good question. Answer, verse 2. Look again at verse 2 at the beginning of this chapter. Where God says to, through Moses, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery. Now see, that part of the chapter is something that we often look right over. If somebody ever asks you what are the Ten Commandments, we immediately start with, you shall have no other gods before me. Friends, we must never leave out verse 2. Verse 2 is the foundation of the law. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, who brought you out of the land of slavery. There is a reason why verse 2 precedes verse 3. And it's so related intimately to the gospel. You must get this. Those words come before the Ten Commandments because the foundation of God's law is God's love, not your obedience. The foundation of God's law is God's love, not your holiness. Isn't it a wonderful gift that God didn't base His love for us on our holiness? Isn't it a wonderful blessing that he didn't base his love and acceptance of us on our obedience? No. He bases his love for us upon his own promise to be our covenant God despite our disobedience. And that's what we see there in the second half of verse 2. The foundation of God's law is God's love. Let me expand on that a little bit more. It means that God committed Himself to you before you committed yourself to Him. It means God pursued you before you pursued Him. He loved you before you loved Him. See, God did something for Israel. This is what the verse is teaching. God did something for Israel before He asked anything of them. What did He do? He rescued them from bondage. 
He rescued them from the land of their slavery in Egypt. Remember back in chapter 3 of Exodus when God met Moses at the burning bush? You might remember his words. He said, I've seen the misery of my people. I've heard them crying out and I'm concerned about their suffering. So God came and set his people free. He set them free. How did he do it? By the, in, by the uh, blood of that innocent Passover lamb. You remember that when the blood was painted upon the doorways of their homes, God saw the blood and he passed over them. He released them from their bondage, brought them out through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, and brought them here to Mount Sinai. Just like in your life and in mine, God saw our misery and heard our cry out of our sin. And he was concerned about our suffering. He saw our sinfulness and he didn't want to let that go. He stepped into our misery and pain and did something about it. He sent us Jesus Christ to die on the cross. I know a man, I know a man with a story. This guy grew up in a home where love was rarely expressed. He always walked on eggshells. His parents would often blow up, point their fingers at him and call him names. He remembers the time he was called an idiot. He remembers the time he was called a jerk. His father drank a lot. He was distant often cold and critical. His mother was rarely happy and used shame to get things done around the house. He spent a lot of his time alone, locked in his room, lonely and afraid. He was a success at school and in sports, but grew up feeling like a failure. Until one day, a friend of mine told me about Jesus. He told me that Jesus Christ had come for me and that I've got a father in heaven who really, really loves me, who really is delighted with me. Isn't that amazing? And you too. God set me free. Free. Let me out of that slavery. Ended the bondage, brought me out into the promised land and gave me a new life. See, the God who speaks out of holy awe is the God who saves out of grace. The God who demands our allegiance, the God who sets the rules is the God who has come to us And met our deepest need. Remember that verse I read earlier from Matthew 5? Let's take a look at it again. Matthew 5, 17. Jesus says, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now let's focus on that word fulfill for a moment. Because this is going to show you how it is that God did this redeeming work. There are two ways to fulfill a law. One way is to obey it, right? I mean, that's easy to understand. If you're going down Highway 417 in your car and it says that the speed limit is 65 and you're going 65 or less, then you're fulfilling the law. 
You're obeying the law. The law has nothing on you. You are in right relationship with the law. It doesn't condemn you. Well, Jesus fulfilled the law that way. He perfectly obeyed it. From the moment he was born in Bethlehem to the day he died on Calvary, Jesus obeyed God's law. Every jot and tittle, every little bit, Jesus was perfectly obedient. We call that his active obedience. And he fulfilled the law by obeying it for you. But there's a second way to fulfill the law. Let's again go back to the 417. If you see that the speed limit is 65 and you're going 75 or 80 or God forbid more. And an officer pulls you over and gives you a ticket, writes you a ticket and you pay the fine. You've fulfilled the law. You've paid the penalty. You are now, now that you've paid the penalty, in again right relationship with the law. It does not condemn you. It has nothing on you. Well, Jesus fulfilled the law that way too. He paid its penalty. Only in his case, it wasn't the penalty he deserved. It's the penalty you and I deserved. Jesus, by dying on the cross, paid the penalty, took our place, substituted for us, took the wrath of the Father that you and I deserved and paid our penalty in full. Jesus, as we sang, paid it all, all to him I owe. So that now when God looks at you, if you've put your faith and trust in Christ, you've turned from sin and trusted in Jesus, here's what happens. His righteousness becomes yours. His obedience gets counted as yours. Your sin gets counted as his. And God says you're justified. You are righteous. I love you just like I love my son, Jesus Christ. If that transaction has happened in your life, that's who you are. That defines you. You stand before the smile of your Father who even when you disobey and break every one of the ten as we do every day still says, I'm delighted to call you son. I'm delighted to call you my daughter. Let me see if I can illustrate this in this way too, a little more personally. This is a picture of my grandson. His name's Tate. And Tate is six years old. He's the third child of my oldest daughter. And Tate is a great little boy. We just love him to death. Normally, he's just running around being a regular six-year-old kid, you know, getting into trouble, uh, being, being the way he is, being the way God's made him to be. But sometimes he, he ran across this costume. I guess it came from Halloween last year or something. But every now and then, he'll put on this flash costume. And it's like he's suddenly transformed. An existential change takes place in Tate. And he believes he is really Flash. Now, normally he's running around like a regular kid. But when he's Flash, he is really running fast. Flash of red goes by. They wonder, who is that? It's Flash. He'll run into a bedroom, jump on the bed, you know, do this, do that. And back again, back and forth, out in the backyard, out in the front yard. I mean, he is a different kid because he believes he is flash now if you or i as adults put a costume on we just look silly we just feel silly it doesn't change us but if we could get into the heart of our little grand boy tate he puts that costume on and he thinks he really is flash when you've put the righteousness of christ on you should think I really am 
righteous. That's who I am. I am a new me. I've been renewed after the image of Christ. See, the more you do that, the more you think on what Jesus has done for you by dying for you on the cross, guess what's going to happen? You will want to obey. You will run to obey. And when you disobey, you will run to the cross. And you will say, Father, I blew it. I receive your love. It will do something personally and existentially within you as you meditate over and over again on the things that God has done for you in Jesus Christ. So I ask you, do you have to obey the law? Yes. Will you obey the law perfectly? Of course not. But if you are in Christ, it will never condemn you. Even when you sin, you remain a dearly loved son or daughter of God. And the more you remember that, the more you remember how you're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, more and more, the faster you will run in obedience to the law. See, grace melts you into obedience. Grace will melt you into obedience because God is your God. He has delivered you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You can look at the law with delight and you can look into the face of God without fear. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for the law because it drives us to Jesus. We thank you, Father, that you loved us enough to give us rules to follow, things to do, directives to obey. You didn't leave us in the dark, but you've revealed your character to us in the law. And then, Lord, you knew that we were going to blow it. You knew that we would not obey. And so you didn't condition your love for us upon our obedience. Instead, you put our obedience as a result of your love. So, Lord, we pray that more and more we will look at our righteousness that is founded in Christ and run in obedience to Christ out of gratitude, out of love. And when we fail, as we will, Holy Spirit, let us run to the cross and see again that that blood is still shed, still fresh, still new to cover us and make us holy and clean in your sight. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the law. Thank you for how they fit together so beautifully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We at University Presbyterian Church thank you for listening to this message. Our mission is to help people know God, grow together, and serve others. To learn more about the church or how to have a vital relationship with God, visit our website at www.upc-orlando.com or call our offices at 407-384-3300.